Welcome to TribCast, the flagship podcast of the Lacrosse Tribune. I'm Scott Rada, digital news editor of the Lacrosse Tribune, joined as always by Elizabeth Byer. Oh, hey. And we have in studio today Congressman Ron Kind. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. What an honor. And we are uh, <laughs> sitting here, we should let folks know, on Monday late afternoon and uh, just over 24 hours away from the State of the Union address. Absolutely. Uh, we're going to be heading out to Washington here shortly for the State of the Union and then a full week of work trying to resolve the immigration issues so we don't face another government shutdown. But listen, the State of the Union is always an opportunity for the president to reset a little bit and talk about the upcoming agenda for the coming year. I hope both sides treat it with the dignity and civility that something as important as the State of the Union deserves. But I also hope the president takes advantage by trying to emphasize areas of common ground that we can work on with the divided government that we have in Congress in Washington and what we can together accomplish in the coming year. What, what would you say is the State of the Union today? Well, the economy is still strong. We're at virtually full employment. It's still growing. Uh, there are in, uncertain clouds on the horizon, too, whether it's trade policy, foreign policy. Uh, general uh, 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 slowdown of economic activity. Consumer confidence has dipped slightly, which is to be expected when you have a dysfunction like a government shutdown and the uncertainty that that brings. Um, but it's not any crisis state. The globe around us, uh, there are some warning signs out there with China debt problem, with the EU Brexit right now, and the uncertainty of potentially Great Britain withdrawing from the European Union, some of the sovereign debt crisis in other countries like in South America that we have to keep an eye on. But still, overall, regionally and nationally, a fairly strong economy going into the, going into the year. This is not your first State of the Union. This is your... Yeah, it's been, I've had a few uh, through the years. Now, I and know that used to be, and, and, and kind of fill in the gaps for me, but if I'm not mistaken, sort of where you're sitting is not assigned seats. No, it's uh, first come, first serve. Uh, there are some who park right along the aisle uh, so that they can greet the president when he walks in. And you've done that before, I think. I have in the past. I won't because it does require some hours of sitting in that chair waiting for the festivities to, to start. But again, um, there are, I think, some areas that can be had if the president chooses to emphasize that, whether it's an infrastructure agenda that our country, so we can start rebuilding Wisconsin and America again, uh, the race to 5G technology and the deployment of broadband, where I think there's great bipartisan support, the opioid crisis. We passed major opioid legislation to partner with our local communities back home to fight the epidemic and try to get out ahead of this scourge before it becomes unmanageable. We just had signed bipartisan criminal justice reform bill that we need to continue to do oversight, make sure it's implemented the right way. The president wants to take action on the rising cost of prescription drugs. I think there's bipartisan interest in trying to reduce that expense for those who need the prescription medications in their daily life. We have a higher education bill. It's up for reauthorization. And as a representative, that represents uh, uh, six of the 12 public universities in Wisconsin, of course, Viterbo here in La Crosse, making sure we maintain need-based financial aid programs is very important. I think there's bipartisan support for that, too. So there are areas that the president chooses to focus on that can bring us together as a country rather than just seeking to divide us. Now, and just for full disclosure, we just were meeting with you with the editorial board a few minutes ago. But what I found real interesting during our conversation is you know, there's been certainly, especially since Democrats took over the House, and maybe we'll talk in a few minutes about how that's changed your life. But since Democrats have taken over, there's been a lot of attention from the media about, 
you know, a couple of members who are farther left than most of their party, certainly farther left than you, getting a bunch of attention. But you are telling us about a coalition you help lead that's that's growing quite a bit. Yeah, I see, and this really has been underreported, I believe, is with the new Congress that is in session now, uh, there's an opportunity to build consensus from the center up and not let the extremes on either side, far right or far left, to drive the agenda. And I say that because the coalition I've been leading, the new Democratic coalition, we're up to 102 members uh, in the Democratic caucus. Our total membership is 238 right now, so it's almost half of the Democratic caucus are more moderate centrist uh, members like myself coming from swing competitive districts like I represent. And I think our clout is going to be pretty significant as far as where the agenda goes. And I think Speaker Pelosi recognizes that. She's very smart and pragmatic herself, so she doesn't want to get too far out ahead of it. And instead, it's those members who are coming from 70, 80, 90 percent Democratic districts who can afford to be more out there when it comes to more liberal causes that tend to receive most of the attention. And I just find that a little bit ironic given what I see where the center of gravity lies right now in Congress. And how do you think you can, when I say you, this coalition, make your voice louder and make those issues resonate more with, with the American public? Well, we've already weighed in as far as House rules. And one of the first things we had to resolve was pay-as-you-go budgeting, get back to pay-as-you-go budgeting, which is something Democrats have always embraced. Unfortunately, our Republican colleagues haven't believed it, and that's why, under their watch, these deficits explode. And pay-as-you-go is a simple concept, which says if you're going to offer a new spending program or a tax cut, you got to find an offset in the budget to pay for it to maintain balance so that the deficits don't get away from us. It makes governing very hard because you got to be weighing these trade-offs all the time and what offsets you're going to use to pay for things. But it's, I think, crucial so that we're not leaving a huge legacy of debt for future generations. Now, the New Dem Coalition, uh, the, New, the Blue Dog Coalition, more conservative group, were very supportive of that. And we made sure that those rules reflected that as opposed to some of more liberal members who didn't want pay-as-you-go budgeting. Although with the final vote tally, it, was, it wasn't close. No, it wasn't. Yeah, it was overwhelming in favor of pay-as-you-go and a few of those who opposed it received a lot of attention, but it was only a few votes at the end of the day. And I think it's important because right now we're in a very perilous time with our budget deficits. We're looking at a trillion-dollar annual budget deficit at a time of a growing economy and full employment. This is the time when we should be paying down our national debt rather than adding to it. And compounding that challenge is the fact that we have about 15,000 baby boomers retiring every day and joining Social Security and Medicare. These huge budget deficits will put in jeopardy the future of these programs unless we can start practicing some fiscal discipline again. And I think pay-as-you-go budgeting has worked in the past, and it can work again in the future. And when you hear about those retirements and people leaving the workforce, and I'm sure you've talked to business leaders in our area that say one of the biggest problems they have is finding good quality people to hire and keep their business going. When people say, well, one of the best ways to do that is uh, encourage more immigration to come to this country and fill those jobs, is that something you agree with? Absolutely. Uh, it's basic math. Um, to grow the economy, you need two things, workforce participation and worker productivity. Now, worker productivity has been relatively flat in recent years. We're trying to understand why that is with all the new technology surrounding workers in their workplace. Why isn't productivity much higher than it is? But the other thing is workforce participation, and you get that from two sources mainly, new babies 
And we, we haven't had a baby boom in this country for some time. And even if we did, it would take 18, 20, 24 years before they're full participants in the, in the workforce or immigration a policy. And what people may not realize is that not only has the president been very strict as far as border security, which every country needs to have, but he's actually advocating uh, reducing legal immigrants in our country by 50 percent. That would be economically disastrous for us, given our workforce needs and being able to fill uh, the work positions that exist. But And why don't you think that, and I, I agree with you personally, but why don't you think that gets more attention than the, the, the trying to cut in half the number of people who are coming here just the exact way we tell people to come here? Yeah, I, I really don't. I don't understand, but that jumped out at me, and I thought, wow, that's really an extreme position. No previous administration, either Republican or Democrat, was talking about cutting back the number of legal immigrants coming to our country, let alone cutting it by 50%. Virtually all of them were talking about ways of expanding legal immigration, which I also agree with. But At a time where people can't find enough workers from yeah. entry-level jobs to the corner office. And Scott, it's the number one issue. When I'm traveling around Wisconsin, visiting businesses large and small or family farms. They all come back to the need of more workers in order to expand and grow their businesses. And there just aren't enough people uh, for that right now. So yeah, a sensible, comprehensive immigration reform plan that addresses legal immigration, deals with security issues as we should, but also recognizes we've got 12 million undocumented people here now. We're not going to create a police force that will round them up and kick them out of the country. And that's something the president even agrees with. Yeah, and he has recently come out and acknowledged that we're not going to do that, let alone the DACA kids, the Dreamer kids, those children that were brought here at an early age through no fault of their own. We're not going to be kicking them off into strange, faraway lands, countries that they have no relationship with whatsoever, not to mention the talent that we, we would lose as a country if we, if we ended up doing that. So there's for a lot of reasons. Um, I've been supportive of comprehensive immigration reform, which can help strengthen and grow our economy, address the workforce needs that we have. And if we could just have a rational fact-based conversation around it, uh, you can pretty much find some bipartisan agreement on these things. How likely is it that the federal shutdown will resume on February 15th? If it were up to Congress, it would not happen. I mean, there's no stomach for members of Congress on either side, really, for us to go through that fiasco of another government shutdown. It's very inefficient, creates uncertainty with the average American. It's very expensive to shut down the government. And then we usually do back pay, retroactive pay to the furloughed workers anyway. So it ends up costing us a lot more. And since the time I've been in Congress, I have never once seen that strategy work in order to extract policy consensions. It never does, nor should it. It's like taking hostages. When you start negotiating with hostage takers, they just do it more and more in the future. And so uh, there are other ways, I think, more cost-effective and more efficient ways of securing our border than what the president's been proposing on a very costly, ineffective border wall. And if he would open his mind to those possibilities, we could reach pretty quick agreement on what steps are needed with today's technology, increased border agents, for instance. We got a 20% shortfall of border patrol agents that aren't being filled, and they won't if we have another government shutdown. And it seems like 
some of the, the freshman members of Congress have enjoyed a widespread millennial following or like a, a, a younger constituency. Yeah. Um, have you made any changes in your own office in order to connect with younger constituents? Yeah, we've always been reaching out to them. I, again, with six of the public universities uh, in my district, with, with the private university for Turbo, we have a, I have more undergraduates in my congressional district than Madison does, which is substantial. So we're always trying to find ways of communicating, and more importantly, making it easy for them to communicate with me, to offer me their ideas. So I do a lot of outreach with them, do a lot of telephone town halls targeting that younger uh, population more specifically. I do live town halls on campuses to encourage young people to show up because the decisions that we're making today are going to have a much longer lasting impact on their lives than anyone else. So of course their voices should count me and we should pause and listen to where they're coming from. And quite frankly, they're out ahead of the curve on so many policy issues of where Congress is right now. And in many ways, it's going to be their generation that will be expected to solve some of the weightier, heavier issues that confront us, not just in America, but on a global basis. So I'm encouraging their participation more and more. And that starts on Election Day with them registering and voting so their voices are heard uh, when it comes time to choosing their representatives. This may not be the weightiest issue, but you mentioned Election Day. There was an idea floated that that should be a national holiday. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell thought that was maybe not the best idea. Where do you fall on that? You know, we've got to make it easier for people to participate. And if you're working full-time and you end up with long lines, it's very difficult at the end of a busy day to get in line for two, three, four hours in some places in our country just to cast a ballot in this country. It shouldn't be that difficult. And if creating a national holiday, even if it's on a Saturday, <laughs> so we have a national election when it's most convenient for people to participate, shoot, some states have already gone online balloting. Washington is doing it, early voting. Most of the votes are already cast before Election Day. And I don't think with today's technology, we should be afraid of exploring easier methods of people participating and, and having their and having their voices heard. When do you plan to get to the Capitol on Tuesday? Well, we're going to be out for one of the early morning flights tomorrow morning, get back there in the afternoon with a lot of meetings and some hearings uh, being set up. We had a, an important hearing on pre-existing conditions already, how, what we can do to better protect that for people with pre, which is over half the population. Um, and so it's going to be very important that we do what we can, especially in light of that federal court case that could completely overturn the protections that exist in the Affordable Care Act. And when that was pending, and in fact, when the Republican health care bill uh, was pending, my phone was lit up from concerned parents with children with pre-existing conditions, fearful that those protections would be taken away from them. And I think it is a real fear, and it's one that still has to be resolved. And how much has your life changed now that your party's in the majority again? We're busier. Obviously, we're, it's incumbent for us to move an agenda forward, but we also recognize that we do have a constitutional responsibility as a co-equal branch of government to have hearings, to bring accountability, to bring more transparency to the government, especially the executive branch, who over the last couple of years really hasn't faced that type of scrutiny before. And they shouldn't be fearful of it as long as they're playing by the rules. They should have nothing to worry about oversight hearings when we're allowed to ask them questions about what's taking place. That is something that's required in the Constitution. So I am confident that you're going to see a lot more of that type of oversight and transparency over the next couple of years. And, how, and, and for those who may not know, uh, you were one of, I think, 15, please correct me if I'm wrong, members of your caucus who did not vote for Nancy Pelosi as yeah. speaker. How would you characterize your relationship with uh, 
Ms. Pelosi. That's very respectful, and there were no surprises there. I had voted for someone else in previous uh, uh, sessions, too. And I've said for quite a while, and I do believe this, that we are in desperate need of a change of leadership on both sides. If you keep electing the same person, you're going to continue to get kind of this toxic, hyper-partisan environment that we've been operating uh, under in Washington. And I'm confident there's enough talent for that talent to rise and replace current leadership and provide a breath of fresh air to our democracy. And I think that's what we need right now is kind of a fresh start with some new ideas on how to approach these issues. And I think, were you the, you voted for John Lewis, longtime uh, representative. Were you the only one voting for him, or do you know? I think I was the one, but okay. he's such an icon in the civil yeah. rights movement. Yeah. If there's anyone who understands the concept of reconciliation and coalition building over such a tough issue, uh, such as race relations, I think his temperament especially is well-suited to handle the House of Representatives and the speakership right now. Last question before I let you go. Um, tomorrow night, how do you decide when to sit and when to stand? Well, I wish there'd be more of that type or less of that type of fanfare because it does get a little bit ridiculous. But um, and you look around like, oh, that, I, my, my colleague standing. Oh, but you know that guy standing. Maybe I should. Suffice it to say, I don't act like a yo-yo okay. uh, <laughs> at, at one of those. And it doesn't matter whether it's a Democrat or Republican president. I will politely applaud, but the idea of having to jump to your feet every two or three minutes. I think the average viewer gets tired of it, and it tends to draw out these speeches twice as long as they need to be then. And that'll be again tomorrow night at the State of the Union, where Congressman Ron Kind will be there. Thank you for joining us on TripCast. I was happy to do it. Thank you. Thank you.